tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. Last month, one of the world's most influential geopolitical analysts, Peter Zion, pointed to three structural challenges facing Australia. Less Chinese demand for raw materials, an ongoing failure to move up the value chain in the raw commodities sectors, and a looming subprime credit crisis that he estimates is five times worse than what sent the US into the GFC. Put together, he predicts these problems will spark a depression in Australia that will last at least half a decade. Even if you think that's pessimistic, there is no doubt the country faces serious challenges, all at a time when the political class has never been so ill-equipped to address them. In fact, perhaps the only thing that nearly all Australians can agree on is that our leaders are not a patch on what they were in times gone by. At the same time, She'll be right, mate, has served Australia well enough so far and may yet still. To help me understand the state of the nation and our politics in 2024, I have enlisted the help of one of Australia's best known and most insightful political journalists, Joe Hildebrand. Joe, welcome to Australiana. Thank you very much, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad that we got to have this chance before the apocalypse hit. Well, I will start there because you're right, it is a very apocalyptic outlook for the country. What's your macro view of where we are at as a nation and, and where we're going? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. It was much more optimistic before I heard your introduction, <laughs> um, but um, it, there is no doubt that there are a number of serious economic and strategic, to use that great uh, euphemism, challenges ahead. It remains to be seen, I suppose, firstly, what will happen with China. I was just reading overnight before we uh, chatted about the further challenges China has in its property market, which we know that has been a bit of a sort of looming sort of Damocles for some time and it hasn't quite dropped yet, but people keep saying, all right, any minute now, the big one's coming, bubble's going to burst. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there on both fronts because, of course, Australia relies on very strong economic growth from China for its export markets. But of course, we don't want China to be a bigger, more powerful 
defensive force or uh, military force than the United States. And I remember many years ago, someone basically saying that the, the window for China to leapfrog the United States in terms of military power was actually quite small because of its aging population. Suddenly it will have to take care of all these people who have moved from the country to the cities and now need pensions and will need a workforce to accommodate them. And of course, the sheer scale of the number of people that involves is, is eye-watering. And so it's actually really just sort of had that kind of window recently, you know, that sweet spot to sort of thread the needle. And that just happened to coincide with Donald Trump's presidency. And so I think the fact that that was such a chaotic period, and you can talk about the sort of Richard Nixon crazy man theory, if you like, I think that made it kind of quite difficult for China to sort of make the most of what it had going for it during that period. And and now, you know, again, with the housing stuff, and we'll still see what the ageing population does, is it possible that China's rise and fall has kind of already happened and we just haven't seen it yet? It's happened below the surface demographically and economically, and we're about to see the results. So that would be a strategic benefit for Australia, but an economic disaster. And that's, I suppose, just, just one factor. And we can maybe talk about the, the more political stuff in the next bit, but you know, I, I suppose that's just one example of, of of the strange and, you know, as the Chinese curse goes, interesting times that we live in. We will get to the political stuff in a second, but maybe just to follow on from that, there are, I guess, two schools of thought on how Australia approaches the relationship with China. You've got the Keating-esque view that we need to engage more closely with China and with Asia. And then you've got the view on the other side from, say, the right that says, well, we need to align ourselves with the US militarily and economically, shared values, all that sort of stuff. Where do you sit in that conversation? And has Australia got the positioning right at the moment? Yeah, well, I still, um, I, I suppose kind of the, the tricky part is that as to that last example, those two things kind of always intersect. You can't just say, right, we're going to be economic allies with you over here and we're going to be military allies with you over here and expect everyone's going to be sweet. With that, we know, um, I mean, my position is obviously that. <laughs> just having just said that it's impossible, that is my position. I'm a huge supporter of AUKUS. I think it was absolutely the, the right call. I fully commend the Labor government for sticking with it and strengthening it. Whether any nuclear subs will actually arrive is another matter altogether, but we'll park that to one side for a second. So we do have to do that. We do have to rely on the US militarily. The alternative is just unthinkable. The alternative is basically saying, I mean, and again, I, I love Paul Keating, but his stuff on China and since leaving the prime ministership has, has just been completely crazy. I mean, you know, he talks about sort of throwing toothpicks at a mountain, great line. But again, what is the alternative he's proposing? That we just throw in our lot with China strategically and economically and just, you know, and just hope that China allows us to live as long as it feels like. <laughs> that it just and or that China just does whatever it wants in terms of human rights, indeed in terms of, you know, economically, just is it a rules based order or not? Of course you need big players like the US to apply a bit of stick as well as a bit of carrot, which is all our iron ore, to a player as big as China. And I think you also can't be too sort of 
I mean, you can become over-obsessed with China. My recent obsession, and I'm a man of many obsessions, so never have one obsession, have many. Um, <laughs> but I think we've also got to look at places like India as well, which is much more suited temperamentally to the West. It is a liberal democracy. And indeed, that's probably why it hasn't been able to advance economically as fast as China, because democracies are very messy and you can't just, you know, can't just flood a village of 100,000 people every time you need a new dam. But, you know, India is going to probably overtake China in terms of population pretty soon, if it hasn't already. And it has a huge, highly educated workforce. It has similar values that we have, ironically, as a legacy of, of empire. And so that could be the next big strategic and economic relationship we have. And of course, we've always already got the quad with Australia, US, Japan and, and India. And I think that's a, another fantastic bulwark against China. The last thing you want is a unipolarity in global affairs. The last thing you want is one country that is stronger than any other. Um, and also the last thing you want is kind of a whole bunch of different powers sort of jostling for supremacy where there is no rules-based order because then you end up with something like World War One. And a couple of people have sort of drawn, much smarter sort of people than me, have, have drawn parallels between sort of what the world is starting to look like now and just before 1914, where you have, for example, China being Germany, you know, growing in power, growing in strength, seeing all these goodies that other superpowers have and saying, hang on, why don't we have those? It's almost a cliche these days to note, you know, China has been the absolute master of all its domain of the entire sort of East Asia, Northern Asia region for its entire history, except for the last century or two. Whereas we in our lifetimes and the 20th century would look at all the, the struggles between, you know, the, the exploitation of it by the UK and the weakening and the opium wars and, you know, the siege of Hong Kong and the nationalists versus the communists, which just ran the joint into the ground. For China, that was just a kind of blip in millennia of history where it has been the master of the known world. And I think you have to see that, just like you've got to see how Russia sees itself. You have to see how it's thinking to think about how to deal with it. One of the big problems, I think, amongst a lot of Western pundits is just this instinct to look at the instincts of China, of Russia, of non-Western countries through a Western lens as if they have the same underlying motivations and they have the same sort of calculus or calculuses. As, yeah. uh, as as we do. And they just don't. And go, calculi! It's calculi! All right. Not all of us did Latin at Eton. Well, um, whatever may be the case, we need to have a strong political class to be able to deal with some of these geopolitical challenges and some of the yeah. internal stuff we're facing. I made the comment in those remarks in my introduction that our political class has never been worse. Is that unfair or do you think we are at a historically low ebb for the quality of political representation in Australia? It's not the quality of the people so much as the quality of the culture. In the last, what is it now, 15, 16 years of Australian politics, no one has actually had the chance to get any good at it. No one has had the chance to get any practice in. You know, imagine Taylor Swift's boyfriend or Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth or whatever. If you just stuck them on a court, having never given them a basketball or a football or whatever it may be, they probably wouldn't be very good no matter how much natural talent or intelligence they had because you have to actually practice something to be any good at it. And what we've had in Australia, and this is my 
absolute article of faith and I've felt very much like a lone voice in the wilderness at times. But from the minute the Labor Party knifed Kevin Rudd in his first term, which was, for all intents and purposes, a completely unprecedented move in modern Australian politics. You have to go way back before the, um, the First World War, uh, before the Second World War to find it. And even, even then, I don't think there's any sort of comparable circumstances. That was like a sort of nuclear bomb in Australian political culture because suddenly it's, all, it's almost like mutually assured destruction and then someone says, nah, fuck it, I'm just going to drop the bomb and see what happens. And what we saw was mutually assured destruction. It destroyed Julia Gillard, destroyed Kevin Rudd, obviously, first of all, then destroyed Julia Gillard after um, the party got decimated at the following election. She, ironically, she's a good person who did a terrible thing and her reputation never recovered from it and she never got the legacy that many would have thought she deserved. There was an original plan that Kevin would win two elections and Julie would win the next two and everyone would go home happy after 12 years and see what happened, just like Hawke and Keating. But, of course... Ask Peter Costello how those sorts exactly, of plans exactly work right. out. Exactly right. So, you know, so again, you know, there's you have to respond to what's happening on the day. But the point is that they, uh, they panicked and they put into place a, a plan that was self-evidently unsuccessful because they went straight into minority government. Gillard was then forced out before she could even go to an next election, which she would have lost in an even greater landslide than Kevin ended up, Kevin Mark II ended up losing it in. And then, of course, the contagion jumped the tracks and, and spread to the Liberal Party, which no one thought would ever happen. No one would have thought anyone would have been stupid enough. You know, these guys having watched the Labor Party implode from the front row then just go and do the same things themselves, not once but twice. It's incredible. And th- and this is the thing. It's a bit like, and maybe this is too long about to draw, but it is a bit like working from home as I am talking to you today. Once you kind of say, well, actually, you can do that, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you say, yeah, get rid of the leader anytime he pisses you off, every t- anytime he hurts your feelings or you don't feel like you got that promotion, yeah, you can knife the prime minister. Sure, why not? No rule against it. It doesn't say anything. It's the same as, you know, Oh, no, you don't have to come into the office. I mean, in theory, why would you come into the office? Why would you go to work when you can just stay at home and blah, 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 blah. That is a very hard genie to put back in the bottle. And we've seen the destruction of it. And sort of, so coming back to your sort of original question, we look at all these big governments, like you talk about Howard and Costello, you know, and, and my sort of golden age would be Hawke and Keating. These guys had shocking first terms. We forget, we see Howard and, you know, John Howard is, brilliant and the most enormous amount of respect for him but there were two really rough times for him one was the last one where he lost government and lost his own seat where you sort of that Icarus thing where you think I'm unbeatable now I can just go that one little sort of step too far but in his first term he lost three ministers to various travel rorts scandals everyone thought uh, you know, Labor was thinking, holy crap this could be a one-term government these guys are off the rails he then does his crazy brave move to say, yes, I promised there'd be no GST, but guess what? We're going to go to the next election and there'll be a GST. That election was won by a bee's dick. Uh, Kim Beasley won the popular vote. So most Australians actually voted against John Howard and the coalition. And, and Howard only won because he built up such a huge number of seats. Of, off the top of my head, I think it was something like 18 seats or something. And it went down to like three or something. Like there were three, you know, they had these three amazing candidates in marginal seats. If they hadn't have run a blinding local campaign. I think Pat Farmer, the marathon runner, the ultramarathon runner, was one of them. So you just had these kind of 
divine providence just sort of said, we'll give you these incredibly popular local candidates in these marginal seats that people will vote for, even though the vast majority or the majority of Australians don't want this, they don't want the GST and they don't want you and they don't want the whatever, whatever. That's the only way to survive. So if you if you look at just that sort of first term, which, you know, in, in the last 15 years, Howard would have been knifed. He would have been dead. He would have been, he would have been cast to the scrap heap. And say, so, oh, John Howard, disastrous prime minister, lost all these ministers, you know, broke a promise, you know, pie in the sky idea of, you know, bringing in GST when no one bloody wanted it, you know, what a disaster he was, you know, he would have been a, could have been a John Gorton or whatever. And then you look at, you know, subsequent to that, he's the man of steel, he's the guy who kept Australia's borders safe, second longest serving prime minister after Menzies. And again, by, by the calculus of modern Australian politics, he would have been a dead duck. And you look at Bob Hawke did the same thing. He got in a landslide at 83 and then thought, I'm the cat's pyjamas, I'm the duck's nuts. I'll call them early elections, stroll through a some giant six or something week campaign. It might have even been longer. It was a huge campaign. Because they're Bob Hawke. The more they see me, the more they'll vote for me because everyone loves me, I'm Hawkey. And again, went backwards and went backwards in a big way. And the only reason it's not reflected more sort of acutely in the history books is that they added more seats to the House of Reps. So they, there were seats that increased because they just increased the sheer number of seats in the House of Reps at that same election. But, mm. you know, if you listen to or read Richo's recollections of that campaign, it was an absolute disaster. And again, by the current reckoning, it would have been hawky, what a flash in the plan, what a fizzer, you know? It would have been, it would have been the Malcolm Turnbull of the Labor Party and they would have got rid of him. First-term governments always fuck up because being a prime minister is really hard the first time. Like no one, very few people come to the job having done it before. So Kevin Rudd, I suppose, is the exception, but that makes it even worse sometimes. And so you've got to give people a go. And I think that's why before this kind of so-called New South Wales disease, the revolving door leadership, before that, the Australian electorate would always instinctively kind of know this, whether they knew it or not. It was like the sort of hive mind where they said, well, we always give, every government we're going to give a second term to. They're always going to get a second term. And even in the worst of the worst, the last decade and a half, that still happened. Gillard still got, or Labor still got a second term. Gillard still managed to scrape over the line. Turnbull managed to scrape over the line. Morrison managed to scrape over the line. So it's almost as though the Australian public actually knows this in its bones subconsciously somehow and gives government you know gives a government another chance even in spite of the government trying to you know dropping grenades at its foot and trying to blow itself up the public going no 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 no, just just try to get it right please just try try again try to get it right this time and then as we've seen you know the the difference is i suppose in the previous eras in the hawk era hawk keating era and the howard costello era they did get it right. They steadied the ships. Very famous. One of my best famous, um, favourite lines about John Howard. I think it was from Paul Kelly in The Australian or something or someone. and said that um, John Howard made every single mistake in the book, but he only ever made it once. Mm. Point being is not that we expect these people to be flawless, saintly, messianic figures who, are, who never make a mistake. The point is they learn from their mistakes so you've got to give Mm. political leaders a chance to make a mistake and then learn from their mistakes and that is what we have not done in the last 15 years and the results of that have been absolutely disastrous so brings us to 2023 24 yes the voice 
was a terrible mistake, or at least the way it was run was a terrible mistake. I was a supporter of The Voice, but was very quickly mortified by the sort of stuff that was coming out in the campaign and the way it was being handled. And I was sort of screaming and railing behind closed doors to, and then and then publicly sort of having to come out and, and apologise for all the terrible stuff that was being said and the appalling sort of positioning of the campaign and saying, please vote for us anyway. It was just a soul-destroying experience. But yes, it was a mistake. And question is, do we learn from those mistakes or do we do the equivalent of insanity, which is, of course, repeating the same thing over and over again and hoping to get a different result? So that will be the test of Albanese and Chalmers. I do think they have. I think Albanese's got really good political instincts despite despite the voice. I think the voice is something he kind of almost backed himself into and then couldn't get out. But I think in other things, he's got good political instincts. He very much sees himself as a centrist despite his background from the left. He's positioned himself over the last few years very much away from that. I know a lot of people will disagree. There will be a lot of people joking on this. as Albo a centrist, but I can promise you that is how he sees himself and that is what he wants to be. And he's, he actually sees himself as keeping the more rabid sort of lefties in the Labor Party at bay. And sometimes the way that's happened, you know, fate has intervened and made it look much messier than it otherwise would have. So a good example is at Labor National Conference, He's like, AUKUS is getting through. We are committed to AUKUS. We are going to stick with AUKUS and we are going to make it stronger and just make a deal. Whatever you have to do, get a deal to get it done. I'm Anthony Albanese and you are going to fucking do this. And that's what he's good at, right? He's a fixer. He's a numbers man. And that's exactly what happened. And it just so happened that the tiny little theoretical compromise they made, which would have no, it was not intended to have any real practical impact on Australian politics at all, is that they slightly changed the wording about the position of the Australian Labor Party on Israel and Palestine. I think they changed it from um, contested territories to occupied territories or something like that. Something that's obviously a fixation of the left and usually wouldn't matter at all because everyone thought that Israel and Palestine were in some kind of sort of detente where they just keep throwing rocks at each other and otherwise be able to sort of function. Then, of course, October 7 happens and it looks like Labor's made this giant ideological leap to the left and against Israel, which is the last thing Albo was contemplating or the leadership of the party was contemplating. That was just a terrible bit of bad luck. And and again, all these psychos on the left accusing him of being a genocidal maniac and murderer of babies and children and blah, 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 blah. And he's looking at all this saying, no, no, mate, I'm sticking, I'm anti Hamas, I'm holding the line. So he, he sees himself as standing up to all those psychos because those are the people he sees. Again, of course, it looks a bit different from the Jewish community and when they think he's having an each-way bet with his little statements with the Prime Ministers of Canada and New Zealand and stuff. This goes to the fundamental challenge not just for Labor but for left-leading parties around the world. I'm interested in your thoughts on it. You have, say, the Labor Party, which grew out of the union movement, which has traditionally been the party of working class just yep. like the Democrats in yep. Democratic Party in the US were the same, just like the Labor Party in the UK were the same. We have seen a shift over the last 20 years, which has accelerated in the last 10 years, towards the inner city progressive lens. How should, say, the Labor Party, but the left-leaning parties around the world think about this emerging constituency of woke progressives on and their traditional working-class bases how do they try and square the circle with respect to these two groups? Yeah, that is the million-dollar question. Frankly, I think they should just torch the woke inner city upper middle class left. 
they're just an awful demographic and should focus um, entirely on working class and middle class mainstream Australians in the suburbs. That means focusing on economic benefits, bread and butter issues, pay packet. It means possibly being a bit more sort of socially conservative. And that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean socially conservative from where most Australians are. It just means meeting those um, expectations and creating a safe space for, for example, people of faith. So just because you have conservative religious views doesn't mean there's no place for you in our party or that you can't vote for us and we won't represent you. You don't have to jump up and down and scream in these people's faces or lecture or harangue them. So that's sort of on the social thing. But again, politically, in many ways, the Teals and the Greens have given Labor a gift in the sense that they're almost never going to throw their votes, either preference-wise or in the House, to the Liberals first because these are parties that are based fundamentally on hatred. They're based on, on hating conservative values, hating conservative politicians. They are parties of protest because, of course, what they are for is either purely ideological or it is... And again, I, to be honest, I think climate change, I fully believe in climate change. I believe in taking practical steps to address it. But the obsession that, that the Teals and the Greens have with it, I think is sort of ideological. It's just telling people I care. And you only have to look at you know the difference between what they say and what they drive to know how much they care about the ideology and how much they care about the actual practice. And that actually frees Labor up. There'll, there'll come a time where Labor will just not be able to win inner city seats. The Greens will just take them. They took three, obviously, in Brisbane. They've taken one in Melbourne. They'll probably take another one. And Albo's and Tanya's own seats are very vulnerable. I think Albo, because he's just the master of all his surveys, will probably save his seat for his successor. But Tanya is enormously personally popular. When she goes, does her seat also go to the Greens? And again, so that means that Labor doesn't have to talk out of two sides of its mouth anymore. It can focus more exclusively on outer suburban and regional seats and that's exactly, I think, well, from what people high up tell me, um, that's exactly what they're, they're trying to do. So that's that's what's behind these stage three tax cut reversals, for example. So this is all directed at outer suburban seats, battler seats. It's aspirational because tax cuts, by definition, are aspirational. And tax cuts are usually, you know, the sort of thing that the left just sort of doesn't like because, because you know, the left likes public largesse rather than giving people back more of their own money. And so you're sort of taking something that is a traditionally kind of big L liberal idea and applying it to working class and, and middle class people. And so I, I think that's a really smart thing for Labor to do. I, a massive risk was breaking a promise like that. And I would rather they hadn't done it if they'd come about it a different way. But still having, now that it's done, now that the, the eggs have been cracked, I think it's very smart. It targets the right seats, the right demographics. And the Greens, of course, I mean, the Greens and the Teals will be all for it anyway. The Teals are very confused by it because, of course, it's going to smash all the people in their seats. They're like, oh, it's a broken promise and we campaigned on integrity and all our people are rich and they're going to get less money and oh, and they'll all come around. Do you think they, the Teals are a political flash in the pan or are they here to stay? Sadly, it's very difficult to get rid of independence once they get in. You usually have to wait for them to retire and then have another crack at it. Probably not impossible in all seats, but like, for example, I think if Frydenberg has another crack in Kuyong, it's possible that his kind of, I hate the word, but brand or his 
persona familiarity without the millstone of Morrison hanging around his neck and the fact that he's since been revealed to have been another victim of Morrison in a way because he stole his ministry. I think he could be a real threat. And from what I understand, there's polling around that shows that that, that would happen, but that may be self-interested polling leaked just for that purpose. And by May, I mean, almost certainly was, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. So that is possible. But the other, the other thing I suppose is it's almost the, the bigger question almost is what other seats could go teal? And this is a big problem for the, the coalition of the Libs. What other seats could go teal? Again, now that that genie's out of a bottle, people go, oh. So we don't have to dirty our hands voting Labor, but we can vote for something else that shows how concerned we are about the environment or our children's future or integrity, blah, 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 blah. And again, you've got people who don't have to worry about job security, don't have to worry about paying the mortgage or paying the rent. You know, they used to be called the doctor's wives back in the Howard era. But people who people who don't have any cause, like, I don't know, I always think with working class or poor people or whatever, they don't really have causes. They just want to survive. They just want a better life. So it's not like they're left wing because, you know, that's what they chose to believe in. They're left wing because these are the only policies that will give them job security or, you know, help them put a roof over their heads. And, 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 that's, and that's very different, I think, to political bowerbirds or whatever who goes, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Mm, yeah, what do I believe in? Mm, I wonder what I believe in. What, I believe in climate change. I believe in change. And, of course, that's why something like climate change is so incredibly attractive to rich people because it's something that they can say they are passionate about that doesn't look grotesquely hypocritical and that, again, they can pretend that they're, well, they can say that they're oppressed by because it it's coming for the whole planet. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm fighting for the whole world and blah, 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 without sort of appropriating someone else's poverty. It's interesting, of course, when you look at anything like socialism or communism that of course this is also the domain of well the ultra wealthy in many cases i mean marx and engels came from the most privileged backgrounds impossible and they sort of surveyed working class people as though they were in a zoo and thought well how can we improve these people's lives i'll draw up a theory that'll make everything better and of course it was disastrous I uh, I used to live in London and it always astonished me how many of those little blue circles on the houses which denote a famous person lived there were old communist leaders from the yeah, 1800s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Marx right, yeah. there, Engels was somewhere in like Primrose Hill, yeah. you know, now. Yeah, I agree entirely. Awesome. It is interesting how history does rhyme in that way. And this is all like the Teals, I think the increasing vote for the Greens is all part of this broader trend in Australia. There is lower support, there's less support for the two major parties, lower mm, political yeah. party membership, less loyalty to the two major parties. We are seeing more fragmentation. My question would be, are we in, say, 20 years still going to be a two-party system and will those two major parties be or party groups be the coalition and Labor? Yes, a million-dollar question. And, of course, I got ridiculously sidetracked. So tying that in with your earlier question. So I think the thing is to look at seats that could turn teal in the future and think, does the Labor Party really want those seats? The Dan Andrews style of the Labor Party does, or indeed they just flock to him. Labor doesn't even have to fight for them. They just walk up to him and surrender. So you've got in Victoria that ultimate kind of upper middle class socialist model where it is all just all just inner city lefties who bang on about climate integrity, except when it applies to them, of course, ask the corruption watchdog. And um, just usual gender stuff, identity politics, all that sort of stuff. Racism's everywhere, except in my all-white suburb. 
So my uh, my argument would be that Labor is better off leaving those seats alone and going after it'll, it'll be a race between Labor and the Coalition to those just dead centre mainstream working and middle class Australian seats on the fringes of the big cities and in the regions. So sort of central coast, outer suburban, Melbourne and Sydney, the east of, of WA. It's weird what's happening with the WA seats. It's hard to know. Um, and I think Labor has to do that because the Libs have to do that or die. So when you talk about, and, and this is one of the risks for the Libs, like, and again, rumours of the Liberals' death are always plentiful and mostly exaggerated, but you just have to look at the fundraising efforts from the Teals. You'll lose all those big, wealthy donors in those big, leafy, wealthy seats, as well as the seats themselves. You've just got a massive structural problem. And it's just, and Dutton's, you know, he's left nothing on the pitch. He's gone out and he's swinging and everything. But it's just, you just look at the electoral map and you just think, how do you get back? Even even my most pessimistic friends in the Labor Party are like, no matter how much we fuck this up, we, we literally just can't lose. We can't lose the next election because there's no way for, like, it can go into minority, but it's just like, the question is, how does Labor win it? Does it win it with minority, knowing that they're going to get the support of all those crossbenchers? Does it win it with majority? Does it blah, blah, blah? The idea that the coalition could actually win. And again, smart people on the, the coalition side, I think Paul Murray said this publicly, so I'm not throwing him under a bus, and he's, you know, very close to to high ups in the coalition. He's like, take a chill pill. There's actually, no matter how well you do, there is no way you can come back because there are just simply not the seats not enough seats up for grabs for the coalition to form a majority. And that's because of the Teal thing. And again, I'm someone who would much rather see, as much as I love the Labor Party or have sympathy for the Labor Party, um, I would much rather have Josh Frydenberg and Koo Yong than Monique Ryan because you simply want better calibre people in Parliament. And Tim Wilson's another example. Dave Sharma's obviously in the Senate now, but Dave Sharma's someone of exceptional calibre and the Parliament would have been poorer for him not being there, he's now in the Senate, of course, so that's good. But so the Teals do, the Teals present this existential threat for the Libs. The Nats are still going pretty well, so that's fine. They held their own at the last election, I think. And so what does that mean? That means the only way that Dutton and the Libs can survive is just raid outer suburban seats, raid regional seats, raid seats that were once considered safe labour. So again, something that people often forget to throw in the mix. Look at what Di Lee did in Fowler. If Ned Manoon, Frank Carboni, some of these other really popular southwestern mayors um, in Sydney, if they decide to throw their hat in the ring, you know, you could be looking at seats that were 60% Labor suddenly flipping to independence. Again, to stop that from happening, Labor has to really look after those seats as well. So I would say the Greens are coming after you in the inner cities anyway. The Greens are never going to preference the Libs ahead of Labor. They're never going to support the Libs instead of Labor, although sometimes they do in Parliament because they're psychos and they don't negotiate, so they block it from both sides in a single block. But anyway, and otherwise the alternative is is just um, oblivion. So I've always thought that elections, both practically, pragmatically, and just for the sheer health of the democracy, elections need to be fought in the middle. You've got to go for the hearts and minds of middle Australia. And if you can get them, then I would hope to see Labor not necessarily even as a left-wing party, but that fabled kind of natural party of government in Australia, that Labor 
Labor values are Australian values and are so aligned that people just instinctively vote for them unless they really fuck it up, which, of course, they have a habit of doing. The existential question that is always there for the coalition is whether you do lean into the conservative side of the broad church or the small L liberal side of the broad yeah. church. Sounds like what you're saying is is that it is should be more the former than the latter if they have any hope of survival or, or would you... Would you take yeah, a probably. View? And again, that's why I would. So they can only do that if Labor goes stupid woke left. So again, if Labor starts sounding like the Teals or sounding like the Greens, Dutton can then say these guys are just loopy, dumb woke left, whatever it is. You know, all the usual grab bag of things. And it's, it's often right. Like they, you know, if you start saying stupid shit about climate or gender or all these things and get preoccupied with these issues, which the, which the Labor Party hasn't, the Federal Labor Party hasn't, to its credit. It's interesting that you've seen Dutton start to wade into the culture wars over the last, say, yeah, six months. Yeah, that's right. I imagine for that reason. Exactly. That's right. And so you um, you do that. And the only way, and he knows that, and I think Labor Party knows that as well, and the only way, the only way he can get away with doing that is if the Labor Party falls for that, again, starts courting those green left tealy voters which it probably won't get anyway because if you if you are an ideologically left-wing voter you are always going to vote for the most ideologically pure and left-wing party and that means a party that can never govern because governing is all about compromise and practice and um and practicality and pragmatism and so you're never going to be ideologically pure unless you're a party of protest and so the teals and the greens will always soak up those sort of wanky, I want to sleep well at night votes and tell people how right on I am about everything. So Labor needs to just leave them alone. It can afford to reflect more mainstream values and it can afford to do more for mainstream Australians economically in terms of just don't be afraid of tax cuts. Don't be afraid of saying, you know, you know what, 120 grand a year isn't that much in Sydney if you're trying to pay mortgage and send the kids to school you know what it's all right to send the kids to a catholic school or it's all right to believe in the father the son the holy spirit or whatever or go to church and you do that dutton can't really play that card then because again then he's just says oh woke, woke left on any politics climate shame blah, blah, blah. And it's like, who are you talking about and again so that's the, the threat for labor but also the antidote as well so it's a smart, smart move by Dutton, and that's and he knows that that's his one shot. He's got to try and box Labor into a left wing corner, and the only way Labor can counter that is to box itself out and say, "No, nah, we're here in the middle," and we just ducked that. And the person you hit was Max Chandler Mather. I want to pivot to the media landscape in Australia. Oh, yes, you are part of the evil Murdoch Empire. It is obviously a secular bugbear, and that's probably a very moderate word for, for the Twitter left, let's call it. Mm, yeah. Why does it attract such vitriol? And do you think any of that vitriol against the Murdoch media is justified? I suppose, I mean, the Twitter left, I guess, and I got off Twitter a long time ago for this reason, it's, it's completely divorced from reality and divorced from what most Australians think. And again, these are people who Usually, from what I can gather, aren't, you know, they don't come from working class backgrounds. They don't come from, you know, mainstream Australian backgrounds. And this is something the left does a lot. And the way, the way they sort of square the circle is, and I, you know, I used to do this at uni when I was a crazy student socialist, is that it's like 
well, hang on a minute. Why is everything I'm so worked up about so different to what your average blue-collar worker is actually worked up about? And the blue-collar worker actually thinks I'm a bit of a fuckwit and I'm an idiot and blah, 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 blah. And I remember going around Melbourne putting posters up. I'd photoshopped a poster of Jeff Kennett as Michael Jackson and written underneath it, who's bad? And I was going around <laughs> putting it up all over Melbourne, wherever I could, including on the sort of cages that rubbish bins were in. And um, a Jeff Kennett, Michael Jackson hybrid is actually not something I can easily get my head around. It was amazing. I oh, just, just, just <laughs> let it settle. It was a, it was a brilliant work of art. The point being, I'm doing all this, and then the Garbos just so happened it was garbage collection night, and they were just coming off, ripping it off, and emptying the bins and chucking it away. And I ended up saying, "What are you doing?" Blah blah blah. And they went, "Mate, you can't put it here." And then I thought there was just a kernel, and it, hopefully it was the beginning of my long, slow awakening. Hang on a minute. Here's me thinking I'm a fucking student socialist, you no, know, standing up for workers' rights. And I'm actually yelling at a worker while they're trying to do their job and I'm getting in the way of it. How do you reconcile the fact that you are completely unrepresentative and have no interaction with the people that you reckon that you're on the side of and fighting for or whatever? And you do it by saying, well, because there's an evil right-wing conspiracy. So you place yourself, again, you place yourself at the centre of victimhood, say, I'm a victim of the the Murdoch press. The Murdoch press is brainwashing all these people and telling them what to think. And so it's not that that me and Joe Bloggs, the Garbo, are at loggerheads with each other. It's a conspiracy that Rupert Murdoch has turned him against me. And and this is what, you know, Karl Marx said the same thing about religion. There's all these bigger forces. It's not that I'm a wanker. And this guy thinks I'm a wanker and he wishes that I'd just get out of the way so he could get ahead in life. It's that, you know, these sinister forces are brainwashing the workers or brainwashing Australians or whatever and turning them against. And it's all like, you know, every every election, it's always Rupert Murdoch's fault, every single... I mean, God knows whose fault it is when Labor wins. If Labor governs and governs well, it gets a big tick from it and it gets a big tick from people like me. I mean, I'm there proselytising in my beloved Murdoch mastheads all the time and, and often I'm quite open about my my sympathies and um, or biases, whatever you want to call it, and saying, you know, that you know, I like Anthony Albanese and like it's doing a good job here, it needs to do better there, or this is the problems it's facing here or there. You know, I don't know why. I'm not sure if there's a whole trove of Guardian journalists who have applied for jobs at the Daily Telegraph and been knocked back. Maybe if they want to change the culture of News Corp, they should try applying for a job there if their journalistic chops are any good they might even get one yeah but, you know, again this idea that you, you've got to change the country or change any culture anywhere by joining your little hive mind in the guardian or crikey or whatever it is and that's why that's why i got quite cross at jim chalmers for writing his big essay for the monthly about how he's gonna remake capital whose vote are you trying to get here <laughs> the monthly readers are already on board, mate. If you want to tell tell people how much you're going to fucking change the economy for the better, tell the Daily Telegraph, tell the Australian, tell the people who mm. are still a bit sceptical or the people who are still under some... But anyway, but um, I'm obviously very fond of Jim as well. But again, it just goes to show there is no benefit in chasing that market. There is no benefit to any politician in, you know, talking, in any Labor politician. Uh, in talking to the Guardian or talking to Crikey or whatever, and most of them know that, you know, often the the tabloids or News Corp generally is a really good sort of stress test. I mean, the the, the Daily Telegraph, which is why I love it, will jump up and down and you know 
it's a, I always liken it to Will Smith in Independence Day when the and uh, when the the flying saucer he brings down a flying saucer and he pulls off the canopy and there's this horrible lizard thing with tentacles and everything he goes <gasps> and he just punches it in the face and just <laughs> it's a recurring theme in this chat isn't it and that's kind of like <laughs> a bit like what the Telegraph does to a new leader or to a new something that's not familiar hey what's this thing it looks a bit scary what are we gonna, let's just punch it in the face and see what it does Joe we are. At time, I think you've demonstrated why people both on the left and the right enjoy your commentary so much. You are fair as well as uh, having the tendency to, to punch the odd alien in the face. Um, keep doing what you're doing, mate. I love your commentary uh, for the telly, news.com.au and on Sky. Thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Thanks so much, Will. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.